Good morning. I'm Dan. I'm part of the lead team. If you'd like to follow along with the scripture, it'll be on the screens or in the app if you uh, downloaded that and prepared. This morning, we will read through Hebrews 4, 1 through 13 in the English Standard Version. And it reads this. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith in those who listened. For we have believed, enter that rest, as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in, his, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest since... Oops. <laughs> Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account." Thanks, Dan. Excited to continue in the series, uh, Rest Assured. Uh, the series title is Rest Assured, and um, this morning's message is actually entitled Completion. Completion. And so we're going to be talking about resting assured in completion. And uh, as, uh, as I think about rest assured, I think about all different uh, areas of my life where I needed rest, time that I needed rest, moments that others needed rest, and I complied or did not comply. Um, the thing that actually came to my mind immediately was, uh, some of you know this if you know me, if you've been here for any amount of time, I, I'm one of three children. Uh, I'm the middle child, and so I have an older sister and a younger sister. And um, me and my younger sister would sometimes sort of gang up on my older sister. That still happens to this day, um, much to her chagrin. So um, you can pray for her. But in either case, um, as a result, she became a teenager first. And you guys, you know what it's like. You were there, but also if you have children, for some reason when kids are young, they wake up at like the crack of dawn, right? It's like absolutely crazy. Um, our oldest actually used to wake up before the sun would go up. And so we actually would have to tell her, you can't get out of bed until you see the sun, like any light at all. For the love of God, please, any light. Like four in the morning, she's like, I'm up. <laughs> I can go to bed, please. Um, so when you get older, as you get into teenage years, you sleep a little bit longer and your body's growing and all those different things. Uh, if you don't understand, talk to your parents. So in either case, um, I, uh, I remember distinctly being so annoyed at my older sister, just sleeping days away, like days away. And, uh, and so me and my younger sister felt like it was part of our call by God to intervene and help her in the development of her life. 
And the best way for us to do that was to help wake her up every morning. Um, and so we would do that on a semi-regular to very regular basis. And so she started locking her door. She started barricading it. You name it, whatever she could do. And so we just thought maybe we had to be a little more creative in how it is that we woke her. And so I'm not endorsing this. So if anybody does this, it's on their own volition. It can't be blamed to me. I'm telling you not to do this. All right, I'm going on record. But we just thought the best way to probably wake her up one morning was to fill up a bucket with water. And so we filled up a bucket with water in the bathtub because it was a larger bucket. And, uh, oh my gosh, I would kill my kids if they ever did this. And, but we, it, like, we just weren't thinking. We just thought she wouldn't wait because she's just rolling over and rolling over and be like, shut up, leave me alone, I'm going to sleep. And she'd pull the covers over her head. We're like, you can't get away from this. And so we, uh, we climbed up on top of her bed because we were smaller and we couldn't really throw water. So we climbed up on top of the bed, stood over her, grabbed the bucket, and two of us just went and just dumped ice cold water all over her. She jumped up, started screaming. We got in a lot of trouble. We got in a lot, a lot of trouble. The bed was soaked. It was absolutely stupid. You should never do it, but it was amazing. So anyway, in either case, uh, it, just, it just seemed like maybe we should be the ones to control and monitor how much rest other people get. And so the question I want you to kind of consider and contemplate as we move through the message this morning is why does rest sometimes seem wrong? Why does rest sometimes seem wrong? We've all uh, kind of wrestled with that. We've all had moments where we think, you know what, maybe we just shouldn't be resting right now, either because we see someone else kind of working through the situation or because we just feel some self-imposed guilt about our need or our desire to rest. And so I want to submit to you that rest sometimes seems wrong because we live in a culture that values productivity. It values productivity. And so the idea of, of resting feels like we're diminishing our productivity because productivity requires activity. And that's, of course, the opposite of rest. In fact, some, someone would say that uh, if somebody rests too much, we would call that person lazy, right? Here's the problem with our definition of laziness is that too much rest, quote unquote, is entirely subjective, right? Like there's not like some guaranteed amount or acceptable amount of rest. We, as other human beings, determine how much rest is too much rest. And if someone is taking too much rest, they're lazy. It's interesting uh, that as, as subjective as it is, I realized when I was in college that there were seasons, weekends, breaks, whatever it might be, where I would be like, oh my gosh, I am, I'm just being so lazy right now. I'm not accomplishing anything. And uh, I, all, I start kind of self-loathing at my lack of productivity or whatever, only to look around and see that my definition of laziness was my roommate's definition of warming up to really be lazy. It was like their, their idea and their capacity to be lazy so far out, out, outperformed my capacity that they wouldn't even, it wouldn't even register on their radar. I'm like, man, I feel like I haven't gotten anything done. They're like, what are you talking about? I just woke up. And so everybody has a different definition of laziness. Their idea of lazy was obviously entirely different than mine, and the list could go on to the person. So rest 
is necessary, but how much rest one needs, even physically, is different to the person, right? Like I said, my older sister became a teenager, and so she would just sleep way too much based on my definition. I had a doctor tell me in my early 30s that I wasn't getting enough sleep. It's like, really? You have a, a physical or whatever, and all of a sudden you find out you're not getting enough sleep. And, uh, and that was so weird because it was literally yesterday. Okay, just wondering if you can believe that I'm in my early 30s. Anyway, uh, but um, in either case, the, the, the idea is that it's different for everybody. Physical rest, uh, your idea of rest, your capacity to rest, it's entirely subjective. So why does it sometimes seem wrong? Our culture actually has a disdain for people that expect something without working for it, right? It's like this, this general idea that it's a handout, that people have an expectation of getting something without putting in the work. There's the, the spoken and kind of unspoken expectation to work and to produce, to work hard, to work harder, to work the hardest, to pretend you're working, even when you're not working, to justify that you're at least not lazy to other people. <laughs> right? I'm super busy right now. Because <laughs> we don't want to be viewed as someone that's not being productive, that's not contributing. Maybe you've heard the phrase, or maybe you've even the one that have said it, that you can rest once your work is done. I'm so tired. Well, you can rest when your work's done. But are we ever really done working? Like, is your work ever really done? Doesn't it feel like just an ongoing list of to-do? It's so weird. Like, the clothes always get dirty. The dishes always get dirty. The to-do list always gets long. Bills always need to be paid. Like, all the to-dos always need to be done. No one ever walks in to your cubicle or into your workplace and be like, hey, email box, empty. Work? Done. Just relax. <laughs> Good week. Nailed it. Like, that doesn't happen. Your work is never actually entirely done. It's an ongoing list. The question is, when are you willing or ready to just push away from the table and say, enough? I've done enough. I was, uh, in, if you've been in the church world for any amount of time, <laughs> you've kind of heard this statement probably, I'll take a day off when the devil does. You ever heard that? <laughs> you haven't lived until you've seen like some, like in my mind, it's like just some old angry dude, you know, like, like, I'll take a day off when the devil does. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> all right. I remember somebody saying that one time and I was like, wow, like, and, and somebody else said, well, I'll tell you what, G, uh, God rested on the seventh day. Sounds like you want to be more like Satan than God. I was like, <laughs> I don't know what's about to throw down right here. It's like this idea that we spiritualize activity. That in some way we elevate work and activity and productivity to some level of like godlike status. Like we're honoring the Lord by working. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't be diligent? Absolutely not. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't be diligent. I'm telling you somewhere along the line we abuse what should be rest, and we tip the scales. When do we know that we've done enough to justify resting? Better yet, is resting something that needs justification? 
Does the idea of rest actually require us to justify? Is it possible that we should, in fact, be working on how to rest? Think about that for a second. I work so hard. Really, put all that hard work and diligence into how often you should rest. What? You're like, I don't understand. Tilt, tilt, tilt. Is it possible that we should, in fact, be working on how to rest? You see, there's two types of rest that the author of Hebrews is addressing in this pericope or this section of Scripture. Addressing rest in this life and addressing rest in the life to come, eternity. And how both are dependent and contingent upon Jesus Christ. How Jesus actually informs rest in this life and rest in the life to come. Verse 1, as we dive in, because it's a, a rather large chunk of scripture here. Verse 1 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Once again, we see a, a pericope or a section of, of scripture starting with the, phrase, with the word therefore. Therefore, and so all throughout uh, Hebrews, and especially in these first four chapters, we see that often where uh, the author's literally pointing back. That's what it means, that they're pointing back to what it is that they just established. So therefore, as it points back to the previous uh, section of Scripture, the author uh, reminds the readers in that Scripture portion of the failure of the Israelites to enter into God's rest in order to encourage them and us, the current readers, so that we don't end up outside of God's rest. As we move on uh, through some of these verses, we'll have to keep something right in the forefront of our mind, and that's the context in which this was written. We talked about it last week, like I said, and so I won't go into a lot of uh, detail about what, the, what is actually happening in, um, in Psalms 95, but Psalm 95 is actually being referenced once again by, uh, by the author, and the author continues an exposition, essentially, of Psalm 95, and real briefly, it's basically King David's account of the rebellion of the Israelites during the exodus out of slavery. And last week, like I said, we discussed how their unbelief, and we defined unbelief uh, based on the, the word, the way that it's used in the Greek, as uh, an unwillingness to trust in unwillingness to trust. And so their unwillingness to trust the Lord led to the consequences of them being outside of God's promises and ultimately dying in the wilderness. And so you have to keep that kind of in the, the back of your mind if you weren't with us last week so you can kind of understand as we move forward as the author begins to quote some of uh, Psalm 95 ahead. In verse two, it says, for good news came to us just as to them. So it's the same. Good news came to them the same way that it does to us. And that's interesting. We'll talk about it because I think uh, a common misconception is that the gospel is not communicated in the Old Testament. That the gospel in some ways contingent upon Christ alone. And so therefore, uh, we can't possibly understand uh, that, that the Old Testament has value as it contributes into, um, into the New Testament. And the author of Hebrews is very clear about the importance and the elevation of the Old Testament. And so we're going to talk about how the gospel is actually revealed in the Old Testament and how it points to Christ. So it, it's literally saying, for good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
So the Israelites, one more time, are an example to us. And so it's interesting because it says, they heard, but it did not benefit them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. So there's a correlation between them and us. They heard the gospel, we've heard the gospel. When they heard the gospel, it did not benefit them. One of the things that we can learn from the way that the structure of the verse happens is that simply hearing the message of the gospel is insufficient for salvation. It's important to realize because sometimes we think, you know what, if I just come to church, if I just continue to hear truth every Sunday, that in some way that will leak or leach into my heart and life and that I'll be redeemed as a result of proximity. If I just hear it over and over again, then certainly that will save me. And we have very clearly that that's not what happens. The verse goes on and says, because... So it did not benefit them because they were not, what, united by faith. United by faith. So united by faith, this faith element is the only appropriate response to the gospel. But it requires faith. Faith here in the, uh, in the original Greek actually means this. It means strong confidence in and relevance upon someone or something, often with the object of trust understood. So faith is inextricably connected to trust. So because you trust someone, you place your faith in them. We've talked about trust in the last couple of weeks, and so we see that the author of Hebrews is just building, I mean eloquently and masterfully building a foundation on top of itself. Like, hey, now that you understand trust, just so you know, trust in action is faith. I use an illustration that I'll quickly revisit so that we can understand because it kind of uh, illustrates the building blocks of what the author is actually doing in Hebrews and can help us wrap our minds around it. So several weeks ago, I used the illustration of someone that was really good at walking on on a tightrope. And uh, if you were here, you remember they walked on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. It was absolutely incredible. Everybody was wild and they're like clapping and walked across with all these different things. And everybody's like, this is amazing, amazing. And so then he gets a wheelbarrow and puts it up on the tightrope and says, do you believe I can do it? And the audience is like, I believe you can do it. We believe. Yay, Hercules. You know? And uh, (laughs) anyway, and so (laughs) some of you guys won't get that, but that's right. Um, So the as he starts to go, he says, do you really believe I can do it? Yeah. And he goes, then who will get in the wheelbarrow? So there's a difference between belief, believing someone can do it. I don't mean belief in the context of trust. I mean, just intellectually believing someone can do something. I believe you can do that. It's easy for me to say based on what I know. I think you can do it. Now, trust is get in the wheelbarrow. If you trust me, then get in the wheelbarrow. And now faith is exercised once the wheelbarrow starts moving. Think about that, okay? So you can say, hey, I believe you can do this. I absolutely believe you can. And you'd be like, oh yeah, then get in. You're like, all right, I trust you because maybe the person pushing the wheelbarrow is your parent or somebody that you know can do it. And so you get into the wheelbarrow and you're like, all right, I did it. I got in the wheelbarrow. Exercise over? (laughs) He's like, nope. And he starts moving across. Now you stay in the wheelbarrow is how faith is actually in play. It's you remaining there even though there's no physical evidence that this is going to happen. You're you're not sure. You're trusting that it's going to happen. And so you're exercising your faith to say, I believe that this is possible and everything converges. 
So verse two is telling us that faith is more than intellectually understanding the gospel. It's more than that. It's more than believing. So you can sit here and say, I believe Jesus came and walked the earth. In fact, a person named Jesus walking the earth and being crucified is a historical fact. You can't argue that unless you're like a conspiracy theorist or something like that. So that's a historical fact. Nobody argues that. What they argue is whether or not he was in fact the son of God. But, but the person Jesus existed. And so you, you can say, I believe Jesus existed. And you can even say, I believe that he died and rose for my sins. I believe that. I trust that. When you live your life, do you stay in that wheelbarrow? Or do you hop out once it requires something of you? You see, faith is remaining in the reality of what it is that you know and acting on it. It's taking action. And we're going to talk a lot about that, especially when we get to Hebrews chapter 11 and and other parts of the book. But we need to understand a glimpse of the fact that what's happening in this text is the, the author is making it very clear that simply hearing the gospel and simply even intellectually understanding it is not enough for us to really walk in the fullness of what it is that God has for us, for us to be filled with faith. So listen, the gospel hasn't changed since the Old Testament. And so we shouldn't dismiss the Old Testament. Jesus is fully revealed by the Father, is what we see in uh, John chapter 14. So when we read John chapter 14, we see that, that Jesus revealed the Father fully. But God was present, obviously, from creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in the Old Testament, people were saved by faith. They were saved by faith. In fact, Romans 4, verses 1 through 25, Paul actually talks about how Abraham was saved by faith. He was justified by faith. And so we see the workings of God's grace and the reality of of a redemptive path happening all the way into the Old Testament. And then Jesus fully reveals the Father and pays the price that we so richly deserve so that we can walk in faith on a whole nother level. So verse three says, for we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's the way the, the section of uh, Psalm 95 ends that we quoted in an earlier week. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So I'll read that one more time. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. It's interesting that it says believed for we who have believed enter that rest. We enter that rest. It's, it's in present tense. So by quoting Psalm 95, 11, again, the author is connecting our eternal rest to God's promises. Only one thing can satisfy our restlessness because our, our inability to rest by definition means restlessness. So our need to work, our need to produce, our need to prove ourselves are are originating in this restlessness. And so we think our work will fulfill our restlessness. Our activity will justify our existence. The role that we fill will become our identity. 
In order for me to be a good spouse, I must do this, 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 and that. And so on top of all the other things I need to do, I also have to do this and this. And my entire life is just a huge running to-do list that never, ever gets completed. I'm just this hamster on this ginormous wheel of nothingness with moments of joy where we go over and sip the water and eat something and we just jump back on the wheel again. It's a terrible existence. If you don't understand that Only one thing can actually satisfy our restlessness. And that's the rest of God. The rest that God provides. And the only way to access God's rest is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Your faith. Not your belief. Not your trust. But your active trust and belief. Your faith in Jesus Christ. Who took the wrath that the author's talking about, that King David was talking about in Psalm 95, and that the author of Hebrews is reiterating, saying, listen, there's a wrath, there's there's a price that needs to be paid, and Jesus Christ paid that price that we deserve. You see, Jesus embodies God's rest, and he secured it through his death and resurrection. We can enter rest, defined as salvation, We can enter that because of what it is that Christ has done. So the author is saying to not have faith in the gospel is to die in the wilderness. You ever feel like maybe you're in the wilderness? (laughs) Like you're just going and going and you say, are we getting anywhere? Think about the people in the wilderness. The exodus that I unpacked a little better in previous weeks. An entire nation, a million people in motion saying, we got a whole lot of activity. Like we wake up and we go and we go and we go and then we sleep. We wake up and we go and we go and we go. Are we getting anywhere? To not have faith in the gospel is to die in the wilderness. I love that the author continues to repeat this verse. and continues to, to repeat Psalm 95. And the reason why I love it is because we, like the Hebrews, are stubborn. We are stubborn people. You know, in the business world, there's this idea that vision leaks. You need to keep vision in front of people. You need to keep vision in front, of, in front of the employees, in front of the team. You need to continue to communicate. When you're about ready to vomit from saying it, they're just now starting to understand it, right? And so repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. Vision leaks. But I gotta tell you, truth leaks too. The truth leaks. And we hate repeating stuff. I have moments where I'm like, I can't believe I have to repeat this. I hate to repeat stuff. I remember my dad looking at me and telling me, don't do that. Don't start the fire. <laughs> we had a little fire in the back of our yard. We had, we, we had a wood stove. We, I grew up burning uh, wood in a wood stove. And so I knew whatever I needed to know about fire. I wasn't scared. He trusted me with matches and all that. But for some reason, when it came to the little camp, like we had like a, fire pit in our backyard. That's the word I was looking for. We had a fire pit in our backyard. I always wanted to start it with gas. I don't know if that makes me a pyro or just a typical teenage boy. I don't even know. 
But I just always wanted to start it with guests, like every time. So I would start it with guests, whoosh, you know, and be like, oh my gosh, it's amazing, right? Like giving high fives to my sister and they're burning, you know. Like, oh, your hair's missing. That was awesome, right? You know? And so then I would get uh, creative with it and I would make little trails <laughs> where I'd pour gas on it and then I'd make a trail all across my yard. And I'd drop a fire, <laughs> drop a match. Boom! I'm like, oh, that was awesome! That was amazing! Don't do that either, kids. My dad would be out mowing the lawn, and he'd be like, Claude, what did you do? I'm like, what do you mean? Did you start the fire with gas? No, I don't think I did. Why, what would make? He's like, uh, come here, son. Come here. I come home, I'm like, what? It was never good when my dad would get the high-pitched come here. I'm like, come here, son. I'm like, eh. I'd come over, like, what? He's like, why is there a trail burned through our yard? I'm like, Right. Yeah, that would be the gas. Yeah. I thought you meant something entirely different. And so he's like, looking at me, he's like, listen, you can burn yourself. If you get gasoline on you, you can't just pat it out. It will continue to burn. I love you. Why won't you listen? I'm like, I'm listening. Like, no, you're hearing me because I'm talking two inches from your face. You will burn and die. I'm like, I get it. He's like, no, you clearly don't because you're finding more and more creative ways to set our backyard on fire. I'm like, I'm really safe about it. He's like, no, you're not. You can't control gasoline. And I was like, right, yeah, terrible idea. And I would keep doing it. I don't know why. It's not true. I do know why. It's because the truth leaks. If we want something, we want it. And so even though someone's communicating truth, even though someone's communicating truth and love that cares about us, we're still like, yeah, but I want it. Yeah, but I want to do it. No, it's dangerous. I love you. I have nothing to gain here. Yeah, I know, but I, I want to do it still. No, don't you understand? We do it. I had a wake-up call, an aha moment. <laughs> Thankfully, no one I knew got hurt. I know some of you are like, oh, my Lord, what's going to happen? I'm actually a little embarrassed to you to tell you what the wake-up call was, but I will because I'm from that generation. Michael Jackson started his hair on fire in a concert, <laughs> and it like burned his hair off, and I was like, oh my gosh, dude, fire's dangerous. <laughs> Why it took <laughs> Michael Jackson getting burned and me being like, holy smokes, there's something to it. My, guys chill out on the gas. <laughs> Reel it in. I mean, listen, we can't moonwalk away from this. <laughs> but it's weird, the aha moments, the things that, that, that actually finally click. Uh, thankfully, it was that, and it wasn't some horrifying story where I either burned myself or one of my family members, which is usually where learning a lesson had to come from. But the reality is, like, the truth leaks. So we need it repeated. We don't like to repeat it to our kids. We don't like it when it's repeated to us. But, but a heavenly father that loves you that much is saying, but the truth is this. Yeah, I know, but I really want to work hard. But the truth is this. Yeah, I know, but I can prove it to you. I mean, I'm such a good person. No, the truth is this. And so we see in verses four and five, how we start talking, the author starts talking about the Sabbath rest and how in this 
life, we need to rest. And we're going to talk about it a little bit more in a second. We're going to skip over it for right now and go to verses 6 through 7. Verses 6 through 7 say, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, one more time, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. This means that Psalm 95 simultaneously condemns the wilderness generation for their disobedience, acknowledges the fact that they heard truth. They witnessed miracles. God did miraculous things as they're on their journey through wilderness. They come right to the edge of promised land and they rebel against God. I will not have faith in you. I believe you, God, because I see a pillar by fire that we follow. Read the Old Testament. Read Exodus. As they follow a fire. They follow a pillow of fire. They follow a cloud by day. Like I said before, Moses strikes a rock and water comes out so that they can have drink. Like miraculous acts of God and they're right on the edge of the promise and they say, you know what? I can't have faith for that. It's pretty big. I'm not sure I trust you. They pay the consequences. And so Psalm 95 is simultaneously condemning the wilderness generation for disobeying and invites readers to respond to God's promises in faith today. Today. It says today. Now. Present tense, active, ongoing, today. Right now. Verse 8 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. This is important in context. I was going to kind of go over this uh, verse, but I think it's important to understand because sometimes when we read Hebrews, I think people are like, why in the world did he just mention Joshua and then we just move on? So I didn't want to skip it. And you guys be like, what are we talking about? So just so you can understand in context, the author has said, listen, Jesus is superior to angels. They are created beings, even though they're miraculous, he's superior to them. Then he goes to Moses and says, listen, even though Moses was faithful and is worthy of reverence, uh, Jesus is superior to Moses as well. And if you're, if you're Hellenistic Jew and you're just thinking through that mode and you're reminded of Psalm 95, which is about the rebellion, then you kind of connect the dots and go, oh, I get it. But Joshua was kind of the man. Because if you know the story of Exodus, what happens is Moses dies in the wilderness and it's Joshua who actually takes the people of Israel and has them go into the promised land. He enters into the rest of God. And so the author saying, hey, don't be mistaken. Joshua, he doesn't provide God's rest either. And they're like, what? We thought he was kind of the man. Like, no, just so you know, Jesus is the greater Joshua also. Nobody compares to our Savior, is what the author is saying. Now, the author is shifting and making it clear from prior parallels throughout the, the text to the idea of Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest. And that would be familiar to the people of, of this generation. Uh, they would practice Sabbath rest religiously. And what I mean by religiously is that it was like literal law. Levitical law. So like on, on a day of rest, I won't go into all of the details of what that involved, but they weren't allowed to do anything. They had to sit at home. In fact, at one point, Jesus is cornered by the Pharisees and they, tell, they challenge him because he's healing on the Sabbath. 
And they're like, hey, you're breaking the law. He's like, which of you, if you had a donkey fall into a pit, wouldn't pull that pit out on the Sabbath? And they're like, you're not supposed to. He's like, right. Why are we so bought into the law that we don't realize that the law is pointing towards something? And so Sabbath, this idea of Sabbath rest is very familiar to this people. They, they understand that there's certain days of the week they're supposed to have literal no activity. They can't walk a certain distance, like an entirely, just so you know, like it was a walking community in case you're not tracking that. <laughs> and so they couldn't walk a certain distance. They couldn't uh, lift a certain weight. They couldn't do a lot of different things because it was an imposed way of making sure that people rested because it's the way we're made. We're made to rest. It has to be part of the rhythm of our lives. American society does not tell you that. If you go anywhere uh, into uh, South America and you experience a siesta, you're like, dude, this is amazing. <laughs> like everything shuts down. I remember we've taken like three missions, three, three or four missions trips to like Peru. Oh my gosh, you go to Peru, they're like, hey, nap time. I'm like, wait, what? Like, yeah, we're doing ministries in the school, but the school, they let the kids out. It's like, they let the kids out? Like, yeah, it's like, and the kids come back? Like, yeah, after they take a nap. What? They must be brilliant. And they were. They could speak Spanish in kindergarten. That's funny, right? Some of you guys will get that later on. Anyway, um, in either case, this rhythm of rest is part of the way God created us, but we... We steer away from it. In fact, the earliest generations of the way America was established, we didn't rest on Sunday. Like the idea of, of rest in a day off, a weekend, a weekend, a Saturday, Sunday, came about because of Ford. Ford decided that he was going to let his employees work only five days instead of six. They had to work on Saturdays. Everybody did. He's like, we're going to give you Saturdays off. And the rest of the world was like, brilliant, Saturdays off too. That didn't come around until, until the early 1900s because you just, you work. You work all the time. It's part of the way we're raised. So verse 9 and 10 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Sabbath rest, a willingness to rest is to acknowledge the gospel in the rhythm of your life. Think about that for a second. If you're not willing to rest, you're not willing to acknowledge the rhythm that the gospel informs about your life. Jesus has done the work. The thing that really matters in this world has already been completed. It's been completed. We need to gain perspective. Because if the thing that really matters in this world has been completed, then it should inform how we spend every hour of our day. What is it that we're working for? To, to get stuff that rusts, that rots, that gets lost, forgotten, what are we working for? It's like sand through our hands. The harder you work, the more you get, the more you want. We should work harder. Again, 
I'm telling you, I'm preaching myself too. I love to be productive. I love to work hard. I love to roll up my sleeves. I love to, to give it my all. And I can get in that rhythm of productivity and just block everything out. And all of a sudden, I'm staying up way too late. And I'm, I'm getting up way too early. And, and I act as if everything is contingent upon my effort. I act as if I am the God of my own life. You see, if everything is contingent instead of upon my efforts, but actually because of what it is that Christ has already done, then he is the Lord and leader of my life, and that changes the way I live every hour of my day. And now I realize my body is not my own. And if I don't take care of my body, then I'm actually violating something that God has created. What is the purpose and plan for my life? Am I shortening that by the way that I treat my body, by the things I put into it, by the way that I act, by the rest that I don't get, by, the, by all the different factors? Gain perspective. Let's gain perspective about our one and only life. As the world around us just lulls us to sleep and says, listen, you work as hard as you can. Now just get some rest. Hey, I work hard. I play hard. I don't know what that means, but people say it. Like, what does that even mean? I play hard. And if you've said that, I'm not pointing you out. A lot of people say that. Like, so don't be like, uh, like we just, we say it. I play hard. Like, but what if you just rested hard in the rhythm of your normal work week? You know, studies have shown that you're actually more productive when you get enough rest. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, like that'll never happen. One of the commentators wrote this. It says, when we rest in Christ's work, we rest from trusting our own. <laughs> I think that's so profound. It's simple and yet deep. When we trust in Christ's work, we rest from trusting our own. We get so wrapped up in things. Listen, what was it that kept you up two years ago? What was it that you just, you know, I'll never get past this. I'll never get past it 10 years ago. I mean, and you're here. And you're fine. I mean, there's moments of devastation, there's moments of difficulty, but we act like our world is coming down sometimes and as if everything is contingent upon our efforts. But really all it's revealing is our unwillingness to, to understand the truth of the gospel and the way it informs the way we live every area of our lives. Verse 11 says, let us therefore strive, there's a word that resonates with me, I'm like, yes. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. <laughs> oh, well, that's no fun so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So in light of the previous verse, we must work at resting. We have to strive to rest. We have to strive not only towards our eternal rest and being faithful with what it is that God has entrusted to us so that we will not be disobedient and be faithful till the end, that we would persevere. So not only our eternal rest, but also we have to strive to rest in this life because it's connected to Sabbath rest, mentioned in the verse prior. Work to stop trying to prove our righteousness and efforts to justify ourselves. Jesus completed it. So rest assured in completion. Rest assured in completion. How? You just stop? 
Like, oh, I get it. I'm going to be lazy now. <laughs> no? But our mind goes there, right? Like, what do you mean? So I don't have to go to work tomorrow? Come on. Can I get school off? Tell my parents. Do it. You know? Now, how is it that we do it? We can't just stop. What is our responsibility? Where's that line? Where's that subjective line of resting too much? Verse 12 and 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, heart, the id, our person, our whole being, who we are, our mind, the intentions of us. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The author of Hebrews is saying, rest, endure, you have eternal rest, you have that which God has provided, and then the action leads to the word of God. So how do you do it? You engage in scripture. You know, you can't separate Jesus and scripture. We know Jesus in large part because of scripture, because of how he's revealed through scripture. And listen, I'll tell you, it'd be easy. It would be easy right now. In fact, the preaching and teaching team, we had a lively discussion about an application that would, would have somehow be just connected to read your Bible, right? Because it's kind of like this canned response. Be like, hey, thanks for coming to church. You know what you got to do? Read your Bible. God bless. See you next week. And you're like, what? It's very like Christian jargony. But I want to tell you what it is that the author's saying is allow scripture to read you. That's what it's saying. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the division of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning that scripture discerns us. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Scripture is reading us if we'd allow it to. Scripture reveals us and it resets us. What I'm talking about is when you read a verse about how wicked we are. And you think, I'm pretty wicked. And all of a sudden you start reviewing the actions and the decisions and the words that you spoke this week. And you go, huh, I'm really wicked. And scripture starts to read us. And we feel convicted and we say, Lord, would you, would you reorient my heart and mind? Would you help me to be slow to anger and quick to love? Would you give me the patience? Because you're so patient with me, God. You see, so I'm not trying to tell you to just read your Bible more. I'm telling you, take time to allow scripture to read you. Otherwise, you will simply hear the gospel. You'll simply believe the gospel, you'll trust the gospel, but it will be so hard for you to have faith in it, to act on it. And some of you know what I mean. It's like you're not connecting the dots of what it is that you know. You find yourself in moments throughout the day where you're like, why am I still deciding this? I know better. What am I doing? But Romans tells us that we renew our mind through the reading of scripture. It leads us to Christ-likeness. And we need to begin or continue in the journey of biblical literacy. 
It's one of our passions here at Centerway. It's why we create environments for you to engage the text, whether it's one of these scripture journals, which we encourage you to take, or if it's because you signed up for the devotions and and you're engaging in the word on deeper levels. If if the only way you're interacting with scripture is on a Sunday morning, I want to challenge you to change that. And, And that leads us to our application The application question that I want you to be able to leave this place this morning with and considering throughout the week is this. How will I engage Scripture more deeply? How will I engage Scripture more deeply? Like I said, don't don't allow it to be like, oh, I'm going to read my Bible. (laughs) And it says more deeply because we're all at different levels. I know that there's some people in the room today that are far from God, that came into this place with a whole mess of objections to even whether or not God is worthy of our faith. All the way to people that are committed Christ followers. And so wherever you find yourself on that gabbit this morning, I want to let you know that the the text requires something from every single one of us. And so what does it look like for you to engage Scripture more deeply? If you would, just bow your heads and close your eyes and consider that for a moment as the team comes up and prepares to go into a response time to what it is that we've heard this morning, I want to challenge you to consider that maybe engaging Scripture, revealing Christ, looks like salvation to you this morning. It means getting to the place where you say, listen, I'm going to cross the line of faith. I've been doing a lot of living as the leader of my own life, and today I want to lay my life down. And I'm not going to embarrass you or make you come up or anything like that. This is a decision that you can make in in your seat if you want. And so with the quietness of your own mind, you can simply pray a prayer right now and say, Lord, I've been living for myself, but I know you paid the price for the wrath towards sin. Would you forgive me my sin? Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. You can start like that. Maybe that's your application this morning. That engaging in scripture means allowing scripture to show you that you're a sinner that needs to be saved by grace. For others of you, maybe your application this morning is to say the best way I can engage in scripture is to to sign up for the devotionals. Maybe that's where it starts. Maybe you you haven't really established a devotional life or maybe you do have a devotional life but you want to augment it with devotions that our team writes that correspond with this morning's message and you can do that. Through the YouVersion app, you can do it by signing up on the, the card on your seat and putting it in the box as you leave. Maybe that's your application. For others, maybe it's to meditate on, the, on Scripture, to just take a verse and to go deeper and say, Lord, would you reveal the intentions of my heart? Would you allow this Scripture to come to life? Maybe this idea of, of meditating on a on scripture or getting more involved is overwhelming to you. Maybe you're like, I don't even know how necessarily to read the Bible. Like I read a verse and it just seems like it means nothing to me or I'm confused by it. And Whether that's you or whether you are um, further along in your journey and you've just never had someone walk alongside you, we provide opportunity for you to be spiritually coached. Maybe that's your application. We have physical coaches. We have sports coaches. We have business coaches. We have coaches for all these areas. But how many of you have a spiritual coach? So we provide an eight-week opportunity for someone to walk alongside you, spiritually coach you. Maybe that's your application to engage Scripture more deeply. Maybe, maybe you've done all those things. It just means that you need to act. 
You just need to be a person of faith that engages Scripture more deeply in a way that it informs the way you live your life, the daily decisions that you make, the conversations that you have. I don't pretend to know, but I know that the Holy Spirit is faithful to reveal that. And so as we respond this morning in song, allow the Holy Spirit to reveal what your application should be.